0: It's good to be here. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure what would happen. You know, I uh, I was delayed about an hour at the Richmond Bridge. There was a bad accident there, actually involving at least four or five cars. And um, Rasika suggested that we just have a, a moment uh, maybe to send some prayers or energies or blessings, because it's certainly that Those people must be in in shock who are involved with that and, and in a difficult state right now. So maybe just take a short time. Okay. Can can you hear me in the back? You know what? We could have a talk with Mike One. Let's go to Mike Okay. Is this a little better? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good to be back here. I recognize many of you, um, and I also, uh, it's great to see some people that I've shared uh, the retreat during the month of February, because I've just actually come from being on retreat for four weeks a few days ago, and it's great to see some friends who shared that time and space with me. Um, For people who don't know me, let me just introduce myself uh, briefly. Uh, Donald Rothberg, live in Berkeley, and um, I'm a teacher and writer, uh, teach some small meditation groups in Berkeley, do teaching through Buddhist Peace Fellowship as well, and different kinds of organizing. And also I'm a teacher at the uh, Saber Graduate School in San Francisco. And generally I'm really I um, most interested in the connection of meditation and daily life and, and also how we respond to questions of uh, injustice and sort of the, the larger social and ecological situation and how we connect that with our practice. And my theme today is actually related to, the, to those interests. It's, it's about how we connect um, our sense of mindfulness and presence with our activity in our doing. You might say that it's about the relationship between being and doing, which is a a really important theme. Um, I was at a retreat that Jack Kornfield led uh, some years ago, and I remember him remarking, before silence was broken at this retreat, he, he said, things feel so harmonious here. They feel very gentle and kind. Of course we haven't opened up our mouths yet. (laughs) 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 Whoops! And he himself put his hand over his mouth like that. uh, Suggesting that it's a large part of this practice to learn how to bring that sense of presence to our activities, to our everyday life in the world, to our our work, and it's certainly a great challenge coming out of a retreat to do that, because we find ourselves um, coming from a lot of presence, a lot of uh, awareness, and then suddenly, for most of us, having a large number of activities, and how do we keep that same quality of awareness going? It's certainly a challenge. I came back to 300 emails, (laughs) 300 emails, you know, multiple telephone calls, Meetings almost all week, and how do you do it? How do you and, and so you could say that the theme of my talk is how to have one's actions and one's doing come more and more out of a sense of presence? And that's 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 the question. Because when our practice is like that, it takes off. When our practice becomes something more than what we do just in the sitting or just a half an hour a day or an hour a day. And when those qualities of mindfulness and care and kindness for ourselves and others comes to be there more and more in all our ordinary activities, is when this particular practice starts to blossom in incredible ways. And so I want to explore the territory of why it's difficult to do that and some guidelines for having that happen. And if people are interested uh, when we have a discussion and questions, I'd be very happy to talk about the retreat itself. I know some of you have not done retreats, and some of you have not done long retreats, and if you're interested in just uh, talking about that or asking, well, what's it like to come back to 300 emails after a month in silence? Um, I won't go into it in depth now, but it's—it's—I'd it's, um, be happy to to go in that direction during during the discussions. In this culture, we get lost in our doing. Most of us do. We often live our lives as if happiness is about. Completing our to-do list. (laughs) Perhaps that may resonate a little bit. (laughs) You know, I mean forget about enlightenment, forget about deep relationships, forget about harmony with nature, complete my to-do list. That's where it's at, right? Um, And I think we we sometimes get in a mode where we, uh, where we just go from one thing to the other, and we try. We, it's like as if we say, "Oh, I just got to do this, and then I just got to do that. I just got to do that," and we imagine that there's some rest at the end of the doing. We imagine there's some rest. We call it after work. We call it the weekend, we call it retirement, we call it death, (laughs) Uh. (laughs) and we're, it's very hard. We often, you know, we know so many people who plan to do what they really want to do in retirement, and then by the time it gets there, they forget what it is. There's a deep sadness to this round of doing. It, it's, it gets very frenetic. Uh, I wanted to read a poem that um, my friend Diana Winston, who I also teach with, uh, sometimes here, and sometimes for Buddhist Peace Help, she wrote this poem. It's called Speed. It's about, it's about this. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop and it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to help me stop. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And so we know that, right? And even if we're practicing, even if we meditate regularly, we get into that, don't we? We get into that if we're honest with ourselves. We get into that where we lose that sense of presence, and where it's just the the doing. Um, Thomas Merton had this to say about this phenomenon. Thomas Merton, the the contemplative Christian, who formed many bridges between Christian and Buddhist uh, contemplatives, was a friend of the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Han. He said this about this phenomenon: There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs. Overwork, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful." And I think, you know, we have this all, I think, to some extent. I mean, I I know from talking with many friends who've done years of spiritual practices, it's as if one of their main growing edges is simply to give space and time for themselves. I assume this relates to you, although it's nice to be here on a Wednesday morning when many other people are working. <laughs> so I don't know your, your exact situation. But I know that for, many, for myself and many friends, it's, it's a real concern. This, this doing can really um, take us away and, and can, can be a pattern that is, is, is painful. I mean, I think the, the, that the poem by Diana is a very painful poem. I think think we felt that. It's very, um, it it, it can really tear at us to to feel that. And it's deep in our culture. It's not something that's just a personal problem, that I haven't organized my life well enough so that I can find space and time. It's really deep in our culture, and there are enormous cultural pressures, whether it's the fact that um, people simply work more, You know, there's the book called The Overworked American. It says that actual work has gone up 20% in the last 20 or 30 years. The philosopher Martin Heidegger, who wrote in the last century, he started his major work called Being in Time with this question. Do we really know what we mean by being? Can we really be? Not at all. So it is fitting that we should raise again the question of being. But are we nowadays even perplexed that we don't know how to look into the question of being? Not at all. There's this way that our culture has often become a culture of doing. A culture in which we continually think of doing and we think of how we're, how we're doing. We think of, how did I do that? Did this person think I did that well? There's this great amount of thinking, and it's very clear going into a retreat for a long time, these patterns of thinking, because they start dying down when we're not doing so much, but they're still there. And we have this continual commentary, which, which comes with our doing. Wondering about how I'm doing, Does this person like it? Should I do more? How can I take care of this event that's coming up? And it's kind of endless. And we may also know that it's not in all cultures like that. You know some of you may have gone to um, indigenous cultures where there's much more of a sense of presence and not always that sense or not even that sense of of continual doing. In thinking about this I, I was thinking also of the time that I've spent in the uh, Southern Mountains, and particularly in around Virginia. Um, there's a quality of being more in the present that I found in, in that culture was really more like the 19th century. And I was thinking of... I had a friend uh, named Guy Townsend who died in um, 1975. And w- when I was... Um, you know, just around 20, I spent a lot of time with him. He taught me how to um, find plants and identify animals a lot, and we used to spend a lot of time in the mountains together. He didn't say much, and and we used to have what uh, the neighbors around there called famous conversations, or famous conversations. We would just sit there, and I was mostly living in Massachusetts then, and we would just sit there, and he would say got much corn up there in Massachusetts? And I'd say, and I'd say, yeah, it's it's a fair amount up there. Then we just sit there for about three or four minutes. (laughs) How about peaches? (laughs) We go on like that for about an hour. (laughs) I think he was not consumed by doing. And it's it's a very fond memory to to think of that. Um, From the point of view of our practice, being in this culture and being embedded in those cycles of doing, when we actually look more carefully, we see that we tend to identify ourselves as doers. We come to think of our most basic identity as being that of a doer. I am taking care of this. I am strategizing so this event will happen well. I am repairing this. I am doing this. I am doing that. And our identity comes to be a little more narrow. And who I become, I'm the doer. I'm doing everything. I'm responsible for doing this and doing that. And in itself that's not a problem per se, it's only if we think essentially that's all I am. And the problem in this culture with the incessant doing is that we often come to think that's pretty much who I am. I'm a doer and we really see this when we practice. You know we can see this in the planning and the continual uh, reference to action and doing. And I guess I really invite you to, to see if that's true for yourself. When we turn to meditation, we learn a different approach. A teacher of mine, John Travis, talks about the mindfulness practice as a being practice. We learn how to develop that presence. We really go away from the incessant doing. And we go more into a being, into a being present to whatever's happening. And it's not very easy at first. And, but what we do is that we evoke a sense of presence. And we come more and more to be able to be present with things without trying to manipulate them, without trying to be the doer in our meditation, to just be present with the breath, without controlling the breath. Not always easy, right? You know, at the, at the beginning. Just to be present with the emotions that come up, without having them be different. Not so easy. Just to be present with a knee pain, and to be with the sensations, and just to be present without trying to change it. Even if we know that it's just temporary, it's not going to particularly hurt us. Not so easy. And so we cultivate this presence in the practice. In doing so, we really see a lot of the ways that it's difficult to be present. And a large part of the practice, particularly in the beginning period, is to really see more clearly how it's difficult to be present, for many of us, how it's difficult to get out of a doing mode. I found myself, when I first started doing meditation practice, um, I come from a family of planners. Some of you may also. (laughs) And I found myself, when I first was meditating, seeing that a lot of my meditations were planning sessions. (laughs) And I thought they were pretty good planning sessions, right? (laughs) You know, great ideas came up, and I got an idea how to do this or that, and um, it definitely helped me become a better doer, right? (laughs) Uh, But I also got to see that it was kind of incessant, that if I had to do something tomorrow, um, I didn't just think about it three or four times. I could see in my meditation, I thought about it more like eighty times. And repeated it over and over and over and over. And I always found it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Gil Fransdell, who teaches the Spirit Rock, has this great line where he says, if someone else came up to us and repeated <laughs> to ourselves as much as we repeat to ourselves, we would think they were utterly nuts. <laughs> you know, and we do that. And, and I, and it, you know, I would plan over and over and over again, and each time it was just as interesting as the first time, even though it was completely the same. And I found that that's what really I was, I was doing—that I was planning over and over and over again, and there wasn't much room for presence. And I gradually got the realization, I don't necessarily need to plan 80 times for this event. (laughs) Maybe 25 is enough. (laughs) Um, So we see those patterns when we practice. We see how we may, many of us, be incessant doers. We see how we may be preoccupied with the future, with the past. Um, I heard a great quote during this last retreat, which those of you who were on the retreat will, will remember, but I love it because it's really about this quality of this incessant planning uh, and, uh, and the way that our thoughts uh, take us way into the future in terms of our helping to do things better. Mark Twain said, my life has been mostly a series of disasters, almost all of which never happened. <laughs> Uh, so, so we see that. We see where our uh, planning is compulsive, basically. Again, there's nothing wrong with planning. there's nothing wrong with good planning. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with doing. The problem is when it becomes compulsive. And that's really the if you, when you think of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, that's really the, the core of suffering is this compulsive quality of our lives this compulsive needing something to happen or else we suffer. Needing certain things to be a certain way. It's the compulsive quality of the planning which is the problem, not the planning in itself. Now, not surprisingly, our doing and our compulsive doing can also influence us in our meditation. And it's something to look for. That as meditators, we can be in charge of the meditation and be the doer of the meditation. <laughs> and the same patterns which help us in planning and in endless doing can also be present when we meditate. In fact, uh, it's almost inevitable that it will be if we have those patterns. And so it's, it's really good to look out for that pattern when we meditate and to see, see if we're sitting there basically thinking, all right, now I do this, now I do that, now I, I'm, I'm the central actor, I'm doing this, I'm, okay, now I gotta move the, the breath to this place, now I gotta do this, now I gotta do that. And it's really good to, to step back and give it a little bit of space. And um, one of my teachers, uh, Christopher Titmus, recognized that uh, even though I would learned to let go of a lot of the doing and the planning, there still was a certain level of, um, doing in my meditation. And so he suggested for one retreat, 11-day retreat I did in, in England at Gaia House, where he teaches. He said, okay, this whole retreat, don't do anything. Don't meditate. Don't do anything. I loved it. <laughs> it was such a relief. And he didn't say, don't be aware. But he said, just don't do anything. And those of you who f- who find yourselves uh, compulsive doers, and again, I'm not, I don't want to judge it because there's there's some there's some wonderful qualities connected with that compulsivity. You know, like maybe dedication and effort and a certain uh, care. And so, the uh, intention in the practice is always to transform the compulsive part of ourselves and free up the gifts. That's really what the practice is about. So we don't get rid of those great qualities that are connected with the planning, but we transform them so they can be used in a less compulsive way. And so in this retreat, I just uh, had so much spaciousness and I, I, I touched a certain quality of presence without doing anything. And you might try that for a meditation or two, sometimes, just to let go of the doing of the meditation, if you feel like that may characterize your own practice, it's a, it can be a skillful means to balance it. Now you can know that that uh, it's not working when you're we're just uh, scattered and daydreaming all the time. When someone says, "Don't do anything for the meditation," so it's a balance, you know. One ha- it's the, the the intention is really to be present. But I think that a lot of other spiritual practices really are about that quality of letting go of the doing. Think of the Sabbath. You know? Think of, really, the intention of the meditation. The this, this sense that we have to sometimes create a space where we don't do anything is deep in many, many spiritual practices. And it's an antidote to the compulsivity of our doing, and it's really important. So this all being said, how might we bring that sense of presence more into our practice? And I just want to talk about a few guidelines and then, and then open us up to, to discussion. A really important way to have that sense of presence come more out, uh, to have our sense of presence be more there in our doing is to be in our bodies and stay connected to our bodies. That's almost the most important thing for me, personally. That if I can be in a meeting and be present in my body, my actions will come much more out of presence and kindness. And if I'm not really grounded in my body, I'll tend to be more in various tape loops. And so the practice which we do in this meditation, of being with the breath and being with the body, is an incredible resource for developing that sense of presence in our action. And so just to be continually more and more in our bodies is, is tremendous. It's really... Uh, and it's happening when, we, when we're with the breath. And it's something that we can gradually bring into our daily lives more and more. So it, it, it means... And, and it's also a way of having the practice be there even when we don't have so much time to do formal meditation. We can be present in our bodies and be cultivating awareness when we're at meetings, especially if we're not talking, but also sometimes if we're talking as we, as we get better at it. We can do it when we're doing manual work, washing the dishes, um, doing work that doesn't necessarily take thought. Instead of daydreaming, we can really be with our bodies. We can do that when we're walking. We can, we can um, be with our bodies when we're walking, rather than, uh, rather than just let our minds go wherever it goes. Um, when I was first starting meditation practice, I didn't have a car, and I was living in Boston, and I walked a lot. And I loved the walking. At a certain point I said, I can use the time I'm walking, to do walking meditation because I, I I was really in love with the practice and I and I wanted to have more moments for awareness and I had a, I, I was a student then and I had a limited amount of time that I could actually give to the practice so to find I could do walking was incredible <clears throat> so it's that staying in the body which is so important because the meditation that we do is really about the integration of mind and body and it's about developing that unity of the unity of our being, so that we can be more present. Because presence is really about being together, having the different parts of ourselves together rather than fragmented. And for most of us, being present with our body helps that integration process to proceed. So it's really, it's really a crucial first, um, first guideline. A second thing that's really, really helpful is to stop a lot is to bring ourselves back to presence. And I know for myself, if I'm busy and caught in doing, stopping for a minute or two many times during the day is incredible. And yet, you know, we just get caught in those cycles of doing, where we and we have a minute or two, but we don't think to take it. So to take that minute or two and just to come back to presence is an incredible uh, contribution. And that stopping we can also do in our meditation, and the Sabbath, to follow the cycle of periodic withdrawal from incessant activity. Another um, aspect that really helps is to be clear about our intention. I came back, when I came back from the Retreat a few days ago, I spent time with a very close friend. We actually made a vow together, which we hadn't done before. We vowed, I'm going to support you for us to have presence and kindness to be the root of every action we take. And it's incredibly powerful to make that kind of vow. It kind of keeps coming back to me. And in fact, intention, and the intention to be present, has far more power than we think. So to be clear about our intentions is very, very crucial. In fact, those of you who know um, the Buddhist psychology know that the core Buddhist understanding of karma, and literally karma means action, actually. Literally karma means action. The, The key to karma is intention, is having a clear intention. And having intent to, and to intend to be present, and to have that strongly, is of tremendous importance. Another quality that may be necessary sometimes, that I have experimented with a lot, is we may need to take some risks to actually be present. Because you know, one thing that the patterns of doing perform for us, is they give us a kind of security even though they, we may suffer, it's familiar suffering. You know, you know that one? You know that one? Sylvia probably talks about a lot. You know that one that we prefer the familiar suffering over the unknown, right? It's sad about our lives, but that's very true. We, we prefer that, and we can see that in the patterns of our doing. So we may need to take some risks to step out of the cycle of the patterns. You know, I know for myself in teaching that sometimes I need to do that. I need to let go of a little bit of control to open up to more presence. Coming out of this retreat, I was talking with Gil, who I was working with as a teacher, and we kind of agreed that it would be a great practice for me to come as much as I could from a sense of presence in, in the days afterwards that was not trying to make anything happen. And my mantra became, Dare to be incompetent. <laughs> Dare to be incompetent. You know what that means? It's like, it's, it's that taking the risk and, and going for the presence, even if I blow it sometimes, right? Even if I make mistakes. It's like, because we often aren't so present because we're scared of making mistakes, right? And so I think we have to take some risks to, to really make this happen. And I think we probably know where those are. It means being a little more unguarded, being a little more present. And we have to know which situations that's wise in, and which situations that's not wise in, right? But there should be situations where it's, some, it's pretty safe, and if we blow it, it's okay. And, I, and there we can, we can experiment with a little more presence, a little more letting go of the doing. When we develop that sense of presence, it can become action itself. When we have our doing come more and more out of that presence, it's as if our action becomes a kind of listening, becomes a kind of intuitive flow that's less concern with a doer manipulating the situation. I'm amazed how powerful the quality of listening is in our action. For a few years, um, a few years ago, I was chair of the entire faculty where I teach at Saybrook. I found that eighty percent of my work was to listen to people. Eighty percent of my work consisted of listening to people saying, I see that there's a problem. I suggest that you find the right situation and talk directly with the person with whom you have a problem. (laughs) That was eighty percent of my work in that that role. And just think of the role of, of how powerful listening is in our interpersonal relationships. Sometimes I think that it's like most of what we do is to have that presence and to be able to listen. Think of the power of listening and presence for something like conflict resolution work. Think of how so many conflicts are about a, a, a lack of presence, a lack of an ability for one side to hear the other, for one side to listen to the other. And so this quality of presence can seem very insignificant, but it actually is of tremendous power. And when it's developed more and more, and when it informs more and more of our action, I think we come into that state which is sometimes called a flow state, where our action and our presence are not separate. I read some about the Chicago psychologist who, who talked about flow with the long, unpronounceable name. You know, Does anyone know how to pronounce it? Yeah. yeah. That's it. (laughs) And he talked about this flow state, which is, think of it, it's really a state of action coming out of full presence. These are the qualities that he talked about. Deep concentration, highly efficient performance, emotional buoyancy, heightened sense of mastery, lack of self-consciousness, self-transcendence, merging of action and awareness enjoyment of activity for its own sake, deep intuition, effortlessness amidst great exertion, a sense of slow motion in the activity, feelings of awe and perfection. And I think we all experience this at times. Uh, I was thinking of it's it's, um, actually become well known these days in sports. When that sense of merging of presence and action occurs in sports it's called being in the zone do you know that you know that phrase and i i actually found a quotation from the great boston celtics center bill russell about the theme that the theme of our day the theme of our morning this is what bill russell said about meditative action every so often a celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game, and it would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there. (laughs) Except I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct. And I always felt felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but all the opposing players, and that they knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. And I think we know those, we know those moments. These, these are the tastes of this, where we're, I think, a heading in terms of connecting our, our action with presence. You know, I was thinking of, uh, one of the first times I remember having that sense was as a student, when one of the rare times, like I was completely immersed in writing an essay, without looking around. And, and I was immersed in it for three and a half hours. And I came out of that and I said that was magical. Something magical happened there. And I think we know that in being with certain people, in uh, a lot of music and jazz is about that. A lot of being in nature may have that quality. And I think we taste there that 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 sense of how the Um, how our action and our presence can merge. So I wanted to close by reading something from uh, Chuang Su, who lived um, just a little bit after the time of the Buddha. And The Taoist tradition really, in many ways, is about cultivating this quality of action. They call it uh, Non-Action her Wu Wei in Chinese, and some of you know that. So I wanted to close with this reading from, from Chuang Tzu. This is called Action and Non-Action, and he's, he's talking about that. Non-Action is action coming out of presence. The non-action of the wise person is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything. The sage is quiet because he or she is not moved, not because he or she wills to be quiet. Still water is like glass. You can look in it and see the bristles on your chin. It is a perfect level. A carpenter could use it. If water is so clear, so level, how much more the human spirit? The heart of the wise person is tranquil. It is the mirror of heaven and earth, the glass of everything. Emptiness, stillness, tranquility, tastelessness, silence, non-action. This is the level of heaven and earth. This is perfect Tao. Wise people find here their resting place. Resting, they are empty. From emptiness comes the unconditioned. From this, the condition, the individual things. So from the sage's emptiness, stillness arises. From stillness, action. From action, attainment. From their stillness comes their non-action, which is also action, and is therefore their attainment. For stillness is joy. Joy is free from care, fruitful in long years. Joy does all things without concern. For emptiness, stillness, tranquility, tastelessness, silence, And non action are the root of all things. Thank you. So, thank you for letting me talk about this topic, which I didn't say at the beginning, but you may have gathered is one of my own edges. And, and, I, and I talk to myself, you know. Sometimes, I don't know, I don't know if you... When I, when I sometimes give talks and afterwards I say, I should listen to what that guy said. <laughs> Maybe I should get the tape, <laughs> you know. Uh, so this is my own edge of learning and I, I think it's a lot of our edges in this culture to make this practice real. So thank you for letting me explore and learn better what I, how I understand this, and, and how I myself might practice what I'm talking about. So, thank you. <laughs> so, we could have some time for, for questions and discussion, or whatever anyone would like to say. Yeah. have a question, Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. You know, sometimes in our meditative circles, certain things get a bad rap. Like, you know, think of it, control, uh, thinking, (laughs) uh, judgment. You know, you know how that happens? You know, we think, oh, I I shouldn't be controlling. I shouldn't be judgmental. Um, I better control my control. <laughs> right. uh, I better judge my judgment, and so on. But, but there's certain, and we sometimes just want to get rid of those qualities for our, our incessant doing. We may just think it's a problem. And I think that doesn't do ourselves justice. And it can be another reason for judging ourselves harshly. That actually, I think all of these qualities have gifts. And the nature of the practice is to learn how to separate the compulsive quality from the really valuable part of it. It's like the alchemist's work of separating the, the gold from, from, the, uh, from the dung, as it were. And this takes work. and this, takes, this, this is partly what the practice is about. You know, and I think I talked, one of the times I was here before, I talked about how this is possible with the theme of judgment. So, for example, I may, you know, uh, some of us uh, may tend to be judgmental about ourselves and about other people. And it's something that is not a very pleasant aspect of ourselves and can make relationships harder. Nonetheless, we we may see a lot of things pretty accurately. And so the question is, how do you keep the clear perception and not have the emotional sledgehammer? On, on oneself or on other people. Because it's not as if you just get rid of everything. The judgment carries some wisdom. You know, The same thing when I talked about anger the other time. Anger can carry some wisdom. The incessant doing, as I was saying, can carry some qualities which, when transformed, can be used in other ways. Like I said, can be, be, behind our incessant doing and planning can be care can be dedication, can be uh, thoughtfulness, can be respect. And yet when it gets caught up with the compulsive qualities, well, uh, it gets tainted to, to some extent. And so how do we do that? How do we, how do, we do that? I think we do it by, by the practice. You know, and sometimes it's helpful to focus on a particular quality or a particular aspect and, and really look into it. But I think if we look deeply and consistently into our doing, for example, if we're, if we're incessant doers or planners and we're caught up with it, if we try to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's not helpful just to stop sometimes and, and not do, but it's also good to look at our motives for our, for our doing. And if we look into those, we probably will find that they're a mix of compulsive and more noble intentions. And that only comes by, by really doing the mindfulness practice and looking. And then gradually a separation starts occurring in ourselves of the more compulsive and the more noble qualities. And a lot of what this practice is about is that transformation. Because we, we wouldn't want to get rid of our thinking. We wouldn't want to get rid of our, our discernment. We wouldn't want to get rid of our doing. But how do we separate it from compulsion? That, that's the work. you just said—that even if your judgments are accurate, yeah—you uh, know, I'm struggling with this too. I I feel that, w- that the the judge, the energy of the judgment itself, creates what we see as accurate. Mm-hmm. So we might, so our judgments actually aren't accurate. We're, Might not always be so accurate because the act of judging energetically creates what we're judging. Yeah. Let Let's not say that the judgments as a whole are accurate. Let's say that they contain, they may contain, they may not, but they may contain some accuracy. Such as when, when I see the faults of my friend. um, And I'm angry about it. I may see things uh, with with a you know, and I may be motivated to see things with more discernment. But it's like the judgment is, is not just the, the, the seeing, it's the, because the judgment as a whole is the uh, sort of the embeddedness of an, in, of an insight into a larger framework of emotion and, um, and pushing away. But there can be, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the interesting phenomena that, like, when we're really angry at someone, we may see things that we don't see otherwise, right? We may have it so there's some there's some intelligence there, but it's just caught up in something that that certainly makes it impossible to communicate that to the other person. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think the judgment as a whole is not accurate, but there's there can be a component that's accurate. Does that help? Some? Yeah, except I'm not sure that if you're ju- if you're ju- if, ju- if the ju- you're talking about the like where the energy comes from. Yeah. Well, also what the, where does projection. Yeah. If you're angry and judging, then are you really, if you're triggered, are you really seeing something that's really, is, is your friend showing up as a mirror? Yeah. Um, poss- you know, possibly just in, in, not as a whole, mm-hmm. but, but we may be able to see certain parts mm-hmm. uh, clearly, but not, the person doesn't show up as a whole because we just focus on some right. minute part of the person. So we don't see the heart or the the way the person is just like us, right? <laughs> right. right. So, that yeah. yeah, yeah. I think what I'm trying to do is to suggest that this practice is more about transformation than about getting rid of whole parts of ourselves or whole functions of our being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah. that's right, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and that's work. <laughs> that's work to free that. But yeah, when we're, that's, that's that quality of, um, yeah, it, you know, if, if we're not personally set off, then the rudeness could be the basis for compassionate action, right? Rather than lashing out. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like just to shift a little bit in terms of the doing. And I'd like you to tell us how you felt and what you did with those 300 emails Okay. Um, the first thing I, uh, the first thing is something I didn't do. I didn't look at at them the day I got back from the retreat. Okay. Um, then my experience, my experience with my three hundred emails. Um, I think I looked at them the next day. <laughs> I got my emails, and at first my computer said there were only a hundred emails. And I said, wow, well that's not very many. <laughs> 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 I can deal with that, that's, that's only um, that's only three or four a day for the time I was away. That's, boy, why, I wonder why there were so few emails. <laughs> and then the computer start. you know how it sort of starts kicking in? <laughs> 100 goes to 150, 200 all of a sudden, and it, all of a sudden it was like 300. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> um, I think, I, think I, I didn't look at them all at once. In fact, I still haven't looked at two-thirds of them, and it's four days later. <laughs> I, I tried to lo- uh, look at the ones which demanded a response immediately. And I actually found myself getting a little caught in them. And I found myself... um, A few of them were from... This will have to stay confidential within the hall here, but a few of them were from the school where I teach, and I thought there were some unwise decisions made. And I started developing responses. And I actually composed answers to emails, but one thing that I did was um, I refused to mail them until a day had gone by, and then you know I was I was uh, re- reading them and I developed a response, some responses, and they had a lot of discernment, but not so much compassion, mm-hmm. some of them, and so I actually uh, I, I didn't want to send them because I knew it was a little bit charged, so I didn't want to send them right away. And so I waited till the next day, and then I remembered the vow I had just taken to have do every action <laughs> with presence and kindness. And, and I, it transformed things, that, that, that power of the vow. It transformed it. So I went back to those emails I'd written and said, and it's like, really like your question, can I say some of the same things, but from a different attitude? You know, from, and so I went back and I rewrote them. And in, in the, the email I'd written immediately didn't sort of do human relations stuff right at the beginning. So I, you know. Um, I just came back from a retreat, it was pretty good, I hope you're doing well, you know, kind of just the friendly establishing of contact. I just went right into it, you know, about that first point, <laughs> you know. And I went back and I did the human contact work and made that, kind of from my own feeling, I, I made it clear that that was primary and that the other stuff that there might be some disagreement about was secondary. Uh, so that I think was in in part a product of the vow. I also had the luck to be uh, kind of doing, getting a little bit hooked with the emails and a friend called and I said, oh yes, it's good to talk with you and close these up, (laughs) right, so um, uh, but it's uh, a few days later, it's, um, they felt overwhelming at one point, you know you know, and it's just like, what is this? What is this phenomenon? Um, So, that's, that's, um, it's really hard to be in one's body and be present and kind and do email. (laughs) (laughs) I want to do that, you know, I think, think, think about doing that as a possibility, as a practice, you know. Well, I knew they were going to be there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't feel a problem with the uh, emails being there. Um, I felt like one of the things that I think that's helpful about the pre- about developing the mindfulness is that if I become reactive about the email, you know, I noticed, I noticed like um, a few, like two or three days ago, I had a moment of panic when when, I, when the emails were there and people were telling me their meetings all week long and I was saying, oh, I thought I was gonna have a little more space to keep this, uh, to keep the momentum of the retreat going and there was a moment there where I said, oh my god, <laughs> you know, and had that kind of a panic for a while and I feel really blessed that a, a moment or two later I said, I thought, that's a thought. I don't have to buy into it, you know. And uh, I, can, I, can, um, I can come back to presence with the sense of being overwhelmed and try to act wisely in that situation, which, which isn't so easy. You know, but I think for myself it meant um, keeping some boundaries, watching the thoughts, and and keep coming back to the presence. And knowing that the sense of overwhelm is is also a repetitive pattern connected with fear. And, you know, not easy. And just the, the assurance that I really don't, you know, I can really, <clears throat> uh, I can answer them at my own pace more than what the pace is that's being given to me with the technology, and some, and some of the people who send them want instant feedback, right, or instant response. I don't have to buy into that. Right? I, can, I can come a little more out of my own um, sense of presence and wisdom, and it's not, it's not an easy situation. Yeah. So thanks thanks for the question. It's um it's not easy. I think, so I think maybe we have time for one more question. Yeah. Donald spoke about conflict resolution, how approaching yeah. a situation with compassion and wisdom. Yeah. And I sometimes I struggle with that because it, it depends on how the parties you're dealing with. <coughs> I think it excuse me. <clears throat> it work when there's a meeting of mind when there's compassion on both sides and but sometimes that doesn't always happen. Yeah. And isn't it true if you approach it first with compassion, if the other party doesn't react that way? You have to keep change your approach. Yeah. I think this is uh I think this is where that quality of presence comes in. Uh and and where the um Our intentions to resolve conflicts will not always work. They depend on the conditions. And one of the most difficult things is to be in a situation, whether it's a work situation or a relationship, where it just looks like the kind of connection or communication or resolution that we want isn't happening, uh, despite our own intentions, despite what we want. And then I think it's really the, the then it's about, uh, again, I think drawing on the strengths of this practice to be present with whatever else is there, to be present with the, you know, if it's uh, someone else's anger, judgment, to be present with that. And how can we be present with that? in in those situations without ourselves becoming judgmental in other words you know we can we can start out being compassionate not find the other person compassionate and start being very uncompassionate about how the other person is not compassionate <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like uh, we're developing a mind that's larger than anything happening, any particular outcome happening. That's what we're doing. And it's great when the compassion meets the compassion, but it, it doesn't always. And we still have to act with presence and with wisdom and with kindness. It's hard. You know. it's, the, it's the hardest thing, maybe. Yeah. Mm. I think we're at the end of our time. I want to thank you all for. I could stay here quite a while more. <laughs> thank you for your uh, great questions and attention. And, and uh, again, let me know what you find with, with these kind of inquiries. I'd really love to hear back from people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com